all of us should be willing to pay whatever taxes are necessary to enable efficient government to improve or expand any essential service. You have a beautiful tax return. The nicest one I've ever seen. Okay, folks, but remember your manners. No stampeding. Walk slow, like you do when you come to pay your taxes. Hi, I'm Stephen Dean. This is The Tax Maven. Here we are going to, in each episode, talk to our tax maven, who will be a person proving Archimedes' point that a single person with a lever long enough and a place to put it can change the world. The lever in this case is tax, and the place to put it is here at NYU Law. I'm Stephen Dean, the faculty director of the Graduate Tax Program at NYU Law. I'm here with Diane Ring, who is Associate Dean of Faculty and Professor and Dr. Thomas F. Carney, Distinguished Scholar at Boston College Law School. Over the course of her career, Professor Ring has watched the international tax field grow from a quirky little area into an arena in which the most powerful states and businesses square off across from one another. And throughout it all, she has helped all of us understand why international tax matters. In one sense, it's quite simple. It's about power. So on the one hand, you still see uh, the OECD playing a really active role in sort of big policy questions that are important to a lot of countries. Uh, but we see them responding to criticism, at least nominally expanding participation in certain ways. Uh, and we see some countries uh, who, maybe the BRICS or others who, you know, uh, Brazil, say, for example, China, uh, India, resisting certain paths set out by the OECD and in sort of traditional international tax and really sort of pushing in a new direction. So I think we're in the context of digital starting to sort of see interesting ways in which we can both answer that question and see the, the shifts. So, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, you mentioned uh, the changes related to the digital economy uh, and the proposals that some countries have embraced and adopted in some cases. So uh, for those who aren't, uh, who haven't thought about uh, this quite as much as you and I have, Tell us what's happening. What is what's driving the change, uh, and what's changing the landscape now? Right. So a couple different things. One, uh, I think, one way to understand how uh, countries describe the change in terms of the economic change uh, is the idea that not just globalization has been taking place. That is, businesses operate multinationally across many borders, uh, but also that they are now able to do so. That is, they are able to operate in a country with minimal presence. And by minimal presence, I mean they don't really have much of a footprint on the ground, maybe no major offices, employees, et cetera. Um, yet they're still able to sort of do business in that economy, whether it's sell goods, services, whatever. The reason that matters uh, is that it is, I think, fair to say that the traditional uh, international tax regime that's been in place uh, grants countries power to tax uh, where a business is actually doing something relatively present in the country. They have some type of uh, what we call permanent establishment, but you can really think of it as almost a real physical presence, people, act, real activities, uh, buildings, something of that sort. Uh, if countries now find that multinationals can do business in their country, but not, not actually touch the country, uh, the countries feel that they're not able to tax, not able to tax adequately, and sort of pushing back now on the rules that make that sort of inability to tax sort of a barrier they see themselves facing. 
because Professor Ring has studied this area of the law so carefully for so long, she has little trouble identifying key turning points along the way. She could pinpoint when the conversation in international tax stopped being about technical issues like permanent establishment or PE, and when experts accepted that something new and important was afoot that could not be dismissed as nothing more than old wine and new bottles, or by invoking what Harold Coe called that famous non-book, The Law of the Horse, which consists of Chapter 1, Contracting for a Horse, Chapter 2, Owning a Horse, Chapter 3, Torts by a Horse, Chapter 4, Litigating over a Horse, and so on. I remember being at a conference in the U.S. about now, I'm probably thinking about six years ago, and it was not academics and government people predominantly. It was a little more tilted towards practice. Uh, and in the context of discussion of PE, so this is this predates the current digital conversation. Uh, but at that time, there's already an understanding that uh, business might be looking a little different. Ability to access markets uh, might be able to be done by a multinational without much presence in a country. Uh, but at that time, I distinctly remember a panel conversation of sort of prominent um, practitioners in the U.S. Uh, talking about this issue and whether or not we needed a new regime. Right, that's the question. Do you need new rules? And the clearance was absolutely not. This is law of the horse. We just had something that looks new. It's all dressed up differently. Uh, but when you take away that sort of covering, you realize it's the same old business as usual. And so the rules will continue to be adequate. Um, and it's interesting to see how much that conversation has changed uh, in six years. Uh, and so I think there is, I, I mean, really the fact that the OECD has moved this far on something about digital, uh, I think is a clear signal that there's recognition it can't stay exactly the same. And the question is how far it goes. That's right. And and one of the things that changed uh, uh, just in terms of maybe the optics or the politics of it, there's a, a tension among, uh, within the OECD. Yeah. Uh, uh, so we've got, you know, whatever your favorite acronym is for these, <laughs> uh, you know, FANG, Facebook, <laughs> Apple, uh, you know, yeah, there's yes, all these different yes. ways of describing what the, um, uh, what these big global, uh, digital players are. Uh, and there's a sense that, uh, depending on whether you're on this side of the Atlantic or, or the other, that either you're getting a good deal or a bad deal from these players. And that, that's really, I, to me, that's a big part of what's changed and what's driving change. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this has come out actually not just in the context of digital, uh, but even going back just a couple of years in sort of battles over state aid. So basically, EU efforts to stop states from, in their view, from offering favorable tax rules to big multinationals. Uh, when the EU tried to stop the states from doing that, it was viewed as an attack upon primarily U.S. multinationals because the cases that they brought tended to tilt towards being U.S. multinational. So there's a bit of a tension. It's not just sector-based. So, you know, the certain kinds of businesses that may be especially mobile, high IP value, able to be active in a market with minimal presence, there's that sort of sector element to it, but also where are they coming from? And a lot of them are coming from the U.S. The change that Professor Ring has seen over the last half decade is not the first time she's watched that kind of geologic shift take place. When I was in law school, and, and then moving into practice, I was interested in international tax. But that wasn't what you did. If you were cool and you had job opportunities in tax, you would not choose international. You did mergers and acquisitions in New York City. That, that is where the cool kids went. Uh, but I loved international. And what's really interesting is really not long after I was in practice, international started to really pick up steam. 
obviously nothing to do with my presence in the field, but but it is interesting that and then from that point forward, I think it's really gathered momentum as being an important legal field within firms, within businesses. Um, and then on the academic side, you really saw the same kind of lag, I'd say even more so. Uh, and also in terms of the kinds of questions. So nowadays, it's it's very um, widespread. Uh, in, I'd say, academic research across the globe to be thinking about international tax law, not just as economics and law and assessment of rules, but also about regimes and power uh, and history and the kinds of questions that people are writing about regularly today. But quite honestly, if you went back 20 years, nobody wrote on. Although experts may not have all understood that major change was headed their way half a dozen years ago, with the benefit of hindsight, Ring and her co-author and colleague, Professor Xu Yiwei, have traced some of the key changes in international tax law in recent years to an unlikely source, Panama. Panama Papers, uh, about UBS um, bank accounts, situations in which either um, financial institutions or law firms uh, had their data essentially grabbed and made public in some, you know, grabbed by somebody and then made public on the internet. Uh, and essentially what was revealed are the accounts, the activities of various taxpayers all around the globe. In and of themselves, not necessarily anything illegal. Right. Uh, but in many cases, these were accounts not being reported at home. These were hidden assets. And that's really where the information was interesting. Uh, what drove us to look at those questions we explore in leak-driven law um, was the following. At the time these leaks were taking place, and, and as I say, it's sort of a period maybe of eight years starting around 2008, uh, I'd say the attitude was generally very positive. Uh, in the sense that leaks are great. They reveal all sorts of information that can help us figure out who's avoiding what and how to stop it. And that does sound good. If you've got important rules and you, people are avoiding them, it's good to know how. Uh, but, but we were interested in whether or not there are any risks, any downsides, and what those were, and how you might prepare for them or think about them. Uh, and so what we did in that particular paper is really try to work through uh, the impact you see from leaks being made public. And so just um, by way of example, I'll highlight two potential concerns one might have. So one is that uh, we were seeing a situation in which the leaks are not just a universal release of data. Um, they're data being uh, put on the internet uh, or on a site, um, but curated by a particular group. So in this case, it was the International uh, Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the ICIJ. Uh, but they decide what they put out. Um, they don't put out everything. I'm not suggesting they should, right? Some of that data would be, you know, highly inappropriate to release certain personal information. Um, but they curate it, right? So they create a package and a picture. Uh, we may be fine with that now, but it's important to understand somebody's controlling it. It's not just sort of a natural pool of information coming to us. Um, there's also a way in which the information is very because it's so high profile, it forces immediate reactions by government. Governments sometimes feel an immediate sort of visceral response and then the sort of public outcry. And then there's a question of whether that leads to good policymaking. So the example I would offer from a U.S. perspective is FATCA. So in 2010, Congress passed FATCA, which was legislation designed uh, to impose um, two things, to, to impose reporting requirements on foreign financial institutions. Tell us, the U.S., about U.S. people with foreign accounts, number one. And number two, require those U.S. people uh, to report their foreign accounts as they have often been required, uh, but with really high penalties when they don't. 
Okay. Um, that all sounds great. Why are you avoiding? And we should find out. Uh, but and, and, and so the impetus behind the legislation makes sense. The connection to the leaks is really clear. The leaks were revealing how much was being hidden offshore. Uh, but the problem was the sort of failure to think about the full scope of taxpayers subject to the regime and not the, the, the kinds of taxpayers who have foreign accounts are not just wealthy U.S. taxpayers creatively hiding assets offshore, but they're expats working in foreign countries. Uh, they're immigrants to the U.S. who retain ties to their home country, maybe to family, maybe on some family account. There's mother's account. They may have a social security account in their home jurisdiction. Uh, they come to the U.S., they're subject to these rules. Uh, that group is not doing anything particularly clever by having an offshore account, uh, but they often made mistakes and the penalties were draconian. Uh, and there was interesting. Um, it was an interesting report put out by the National Taxpayer Advocate Office, Nina Olson's office, um, looking at the kinds of penalties uh, that taxpayers were facing under FATCA, and the ways in which, if you were, if you had, essentially a low dollar amount problem, you're not really a big fish, and you're not represented by tax counsel, you got a really bad deal in the tax negotiation. If you were well represented, and often if you had very high dollar accounts, that's why you're well represented, uh, you did very well in the tax negotiations, sort of working out how much you should pay. And so that's the kind of thing where we're concerned. It's not that you wouldn't want to do any kind of legislation, but to the extent leaks have this part of their power is the high profile, immediate public news face of it. We want countries to step back and think, okay, that's going to put pressure on us to respond. How do we make sure we're doing it in a temperate kind of way? More recently, Professors Ring and we have brought that same empathy for ordinary people facing daunting tax challenges to taxpayers closer to home. The tax lives of Uber drivers. Yes. Um, so uh, you learn lots of interesting things uh, yep. uh, in doing your research. Um, and some of it was troubling, I think. Uh, yep. your, some of your conclusions were, were not very optimistic. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So we went to that project, having done the initial sort of look at taxation and how to think about taxation of the sharing economy. We were interested then in what the actual participants understood about tax, what they were thinking about tax, how were they talking about tax. Uh, and so what we decided to do was uh, look at the two major online discussion forums for you know, ride-sharing drivers, primarily Lyft and Uber, uh, and that was uh, Reddit and another platform that was more targeted. Uh, and we looked at every discussion thread related to the topic. So we didn't do a selection. We just read all of them and coded them for all the different kinds of things being discussed, whether it was, you know, deductions, filing, you know, just everything down the line we could come up with. And it was it was fascinating. I mean, on the one hand, I think we were both surprised at the degree to which there were at least some players seriously focused on tax and quoting code and regulation in their posts. Right? There's something deeply heartwarming about that. I'm pretty um, excited. And so that was actually, now, I mean, it's a select group, et cetera, but did anybody, I mean, literally anybody was doing it. So that was really interesting. Um, on the other hand, there's sort of a lot of, I think what we did see also was the degree to which it's very complicated. The kinds of rules in place for this kind of worker are were originally drafted with a different kind of actor in mind. These are not really small businesses. They're not investing in record-keeping, documentation, learning law in the same way I might if I was 
a small business owner. Even if I had a series of failed small businesses, if I'm a business owner, that's the thing I do. I keep creating small businesses. I'm sort of investing in that kind of knowledge base. If I'm a ride-sharing driver, and and there's recent um, very interesting empirical evidence coming out of uh, Treasury and also IRS studies looking at who are these kinds of platform workers uh, and the degree to which they're often, at least this latest study, um, tilting towards those who are on the younger side, doing it dur- during periods of underemployment or non-employment. So it's it's a, a short burst. And it's not necessarily worth it for them to really invest in learning complicated rules. And so I think one of the things you start to see there is a clash between the tax regime we have in place for, quote, small business people uh, and and really what the realistic capabilities are and, and the, you know, what, what makes sense for them to even spend time on um, for those particular taxpayers. Interesting. So uh, Professor Ring has been ahead of the curve her entire career. Uh, uh, so, of course, uh, we have now a question that is uh, about something that happened a long, long time ago. Uh, and so if you get this question right, Professor Ring, you are going to go home with this lovely NYU Law Graduate Tax Program. Oh, canceled. I will try so hard. So so this is uh, this is quite it. I leave it right here to motivate to you. To tempt me. Okay. Uh, no, you have my full focus. All right. Um, all right. So... Here, here's the question. So uh, you're one of the world's top experts in taxation and digital economy. So I'm going to ask you about ancient taxes. Uh, so, yes. okay. um, so uh, especially cl- classical Athenian taxes. Uh, and uh, the question is this. Which of the following was the most important tax in the classical Athenian world? Uh, so I'll give you three choices. Uh, A, wealth taxes. B, income taxes. Or C, consumption taxes. I would have said well. You are correct. Uh, so, and I'll read you the quote from an article uh, titled, uh, When I Squeeze You With Ice for I, I think that's what it is, <laughs> Taxes and Tax Policy in Classical Athens by Peter Fawcett uh, from the journal Hesperia. Um, so uh, the quote is, uh, Modern scholarship on classical Athenian taxes based on surviving ancient sources has confirmed that the most important taxes were the direct taxes on wealth. Wow. Uh, and the indirect taxes on imports and exports, followed by taxes on silver and on foreigners, um, and also demonstrated previously unsuspected importance of religious taxes. Oh, um, but wealth taxes, you know? Who? Uh, uh, you know? Fascinating to hear. What, what, and so uh, when was the article written? 2016. Oh my uh, so this is, uh, uh, you know, fairly new scholarship. Great. Uh, you know, maybe that's what um, uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren has been reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, ancient ancient <laughs> Athenian sources. Reaching maybe deep that's, and back. Yes. Maybe that's what's going on there. Uh, well, uh, Professor Ring, I'm so grateful uh, to you for coming and talking about some of your, uh, just some of your very interesting work uh, in two different, very, very different fields, both the international tax side and then the, the digital side. And they, they do seem to be kind of converging. Uh, and again, maybe that's your fault, uh, or maybe you just saw it coming. Um, but thank you very much. Oh, it was an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to The Tax Maven. Uh, and I also want to give a very special thank you to those that helped make the podcast possible. Patrick Kelly, Joe Rivera, Greg Addison, Rebecca Carmichael, Jill Racklin, and Anthony Pietrangelo. And thank you, Rachel Burns. The NYU Law Graduate Tax Program has been the premier place to learn about tax law for the past 75 years. So please visit us on the web, visit our Graduate Tax Program website to see the different programs we offer, both in person and online, both for lawyers and non-lawyers. 
Take a look at what we offer, uh, and I hope you consider joining us. And now, we like to end each of our episodes with a quote about taxes read by one of our students. Today's quote is from Sebastian Iagros from Whiting, New Jersey. This quote is from Nobel Prize winning economist William Vickery on the three-factor formula that some states use to apportion the corporate income tax. This simple but arbitrary and capricious formula has all the earmarks of having been concocted by a committee of lawyers who had forgotten anything they were ever taught about statistics or economics. Please email us at info at if you have any questions or comments or suggestions. And if you are a student uh, and want to email us a recording of your favorite tax quote, please email it there as well. Thanks for tuning in. 